somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how are you? My guess is you probably respond if you don't just say good because you don't really want to have a conversation. My guess is you respond with one of two answers. The first one might be, well, I'm busy. Second one is, is closely related to it, and that is, man, I am tired. Rest always seems like it's just out of reach for us. In fact, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but we'll go on vacation and think, man, I can't wait for vacation. I can't wait to get away and get some rest. And then you come back for, from vacation and you feel like you need rest from the vacation that you just took. Rest is that elusive thing wherein we spend our, our work week counting down the days until our day's off. And then we realize, though, once we get our days off, man, oh, I got to go back to work tomorrow. I got to go back to work in two days. We know that that rest is going to be short-lived because, man, Monday's coming back again, and we have to be ready to, to get back after it. There's a rest coming, though, for us that is an unending rest. It's a rest that's better than anything this world can offer you, a rest that means that you're never going to ever feel exhaustion again. You'll never have tired head again. It's a rest that means not only as far as physical exhaustion, but even some of the mental exhaustion that we can go through. It's a rest that means you will never feel anxious about anything again. A rest that means you will never fear anything again. A rest that means you will never feel vulnerable over any of your circumstances ever again. It's a rest that means you will never feel frustration or anger or disappointment ever again. It is a rest that is a, a better rest. And it's a rest that you probably already made the conclusion is a rest that is, is offered by the Lord. It's a rest that is ours once we leave this world because this world is not the place where we're going to find that rest. It's a rest that I can't promise you you're going to be able to experience right now. It's a rest that I can't promise you you're going to be able to experience today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. However, it is a rest that I can promise you you will experience if you, as our author in Hebrews says in our passage that we're going to look at today, if you will stay the course, if you will adhere to, cling to, hold to your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That rest that I was just talking about, that man, we would all love to be experiencing right now, that rest can be guaranteed to be yours. Take your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and let's just read the first few verses here. It says this, the author says, Therefore, while the promise of rest, or of entering his rest, rather, still stands, let us fear, let us be afraid, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. That's the, the Old Testament people, the people that were in the wilderness wanderings, right? But the message they heard did not benefit, for, benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. 
the author is continuing his focus on the Old Testament here. He's continuing his focus on Israel in the wilderness, like we talked about last week, that they failed because their hearts became hard and they became disobedient and they grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses. They didn't trust the promises of God and thereby they failed to enter the rest. And remember last week we talked about, hey, somebody better than Moses is now here. A leader, a, a high priest, a messenger, an apostle who's better than Moses is here and that person is Jesus. And we talked about last week how, man, if we ignore Jesus, how much worse is it going to be for us when we look at what happened to Israel when they ignored and grumbled against Moses, who was God's apostle and high priest for Israel in the, the wilderness? Well, he's continuing that theme now, and he's talking about rest. And rest was something that the Israelites longed for, that they wanted, that they were desperate for, and that God had promised them. If we go to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, Moses records here, I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers. There's our word rest as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord God, your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. So here Moses is addressing those tribes that wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan. If you remember back to your Old Testament history here, they were like, hey, Moses, we kind of like this land. Can we just settle here? Moses sought the Lord's counsel on that. The Lord said, sure, but they need to still go over and fight for the, the rest of their countrymen as we take the promised land. But what I want you to see in this passage is not so much that, but the connection of the land with rest. This idea that Israel was looking forward to entering into, taking occup uh, occupancy, that's the word, yep, of the, the promised land, which was going to bring them rest that they wanted. They were a people with no home, right? And that, that was really the, the only identity that so many of them had known. In fact, all of the ones in the wilderness had never known a native land that was their own that they could call home. Because those that didn't die in the wilderness were children of former slaves in where? Egypt. So they never had a home, never had a place that they could say, this is, this is where I feel like I belong. This is my home. This is where I can rest and feel secure and set down roots and live. And God was promising them that. He also promises them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. He says this, for you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. He says, look, we're not there yet. We're not in the promised land yet. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that your Lord, your God is, is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord, your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall bring all the sacrifices that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. But notice there, again, that Moses is talking about, hey, look, we're going into the land. We're going into the promised land. You're going to have a home. You're going to have a place. You're going to have rest once we're there. You don't have it right now. So this was the promise that was made to Israel. Again, it's, it's in the Old Testament, often the concept of rest is paired with that of inheritance, the land, the possession that they were going to receive. Well, in chapter 4, verse 1 the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That should signify something to us, and that is that the rest that God was talking about in the Old Testament, that there's a better rest than that. Because the writer's not talking about the promised land anymore. In fact, he's writing to a mixed audience. Yeah, mostly Jewish Christians at this point in time, 
But he's not writing to a group of people that are waiting for the promised land anymore. He's not writing to a group of people that are in the wilderness, in the the desert of Sinai, wanting to get into the promised land. And he's saying, hey, there is a rest and there's a promise about rest that is still active, that's still available. And it's still active not only for them, but also for you and I today. And so there he says, so let us therefore fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. The Israelite generation that grumbled against Moses' leadership, they didn't enter into that rest. They failed to enter into the rest. They died in the wilderness. They never saw the the promised land because of their disobedience. You see, there's a prerequisite to us entering into the rest. There was a prerequisite for Israel. There's a prerequisite for you and I. And it's listed there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. For good news. You guys know what that word is in the Greek? It's the same word for our word what? Rhymes with schmospel, starts with a G. Gospel. For the gospel was preached. The good news, the euangelion, the, the, the good news, the good message. For the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard, it did not benefit them. They didn't enter into the rest. Why not? because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the good news is, hey, there is rest available to you. Y'all, that is part of the the offer of the gospel, is the rest that's available to us in Christ. That look, you don't have to to bend over backwards anymore trying to be good enough. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to to work at this. You come to Christ, you repent from your sins, you trust in him, you will receive forgiveness of sins, and in so doing, you receive the promise of this future rest that I was talking about in the introduction. When no more fear, no more tears, no more tired, being tired, no more tired head, no more anxiety, none of that. It's all gone. That's the offer that's being made here, just as it was to the Israelites with the promised land. You say, well, God preached the gospel to the Israelites? Yes. At least that's what Paul says, if, if we can take Paul's word for it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the what? The gospel. Preach the gospel beforehand. To Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. See, the writer of Hebrews does a lot with foreshadowing and reality. And so here what he's setting up for us is, look, the promise of rest with the promised land, the physical land of Israel, that was just a foreshadow of the real rest that's to come. The real rest that was to come is the same for us today as it was for them then. It's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the promise of glorified bodies. It's the promise of living forever with the Lord. And he's saying, look, people failed to enter it, but there was a reason why they failed to enter it, and that was they lacked the prerequisite, which what is the prerequisite in verse 2? They were not united by what? What's the word there? What is is our prerequisite? What do we need? Faith. They were not united by faith with those who listened. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, The author said, so we see they were unable to enter because of their what? Their unbelief, their lack of what? Their lack of faith. So the problem for Israel is the problem that is is still the problem today for people that are failing to enter the rest of God, and that is they don't have faith. Faith in the promises of God, faith in the offer of salvation, faith in the, the guarantee of our future inheritance. They don't have faith. That's what's necessary. He then says in verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. It's an ongoing belief there. It's not a one momentary belief, faith uh, exchange here. It's a persistence in faith. 
What is it that we're believing? We're believing what he's already talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers and by the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What we need is we need belief, we need faith in the message of the Son, and the message of the Son is the message of the cross. It's the message of the gospel. If you want that rest, if you want to enter into that time, if you want to have no more fear, no more anxiety, no more worry, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more any of that, then the key is the cross and what you've done with it. Have you repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that he died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven, that he rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him, Have you responded to that message by faith, trusting in that? Again, the focus is not just a a one, once in time transaction, but an ongoing, enduring faith. Think about your relationship to your sin right now, which is a weird way to put it, I, I know. But I want you to think about that right now as opposed to what it was like when you were first saved. That moment that you first understood the gospel, that God removed the veil so that you could understand your need for Jesus Christ. And think about at that moment how you looked at your sin and saw it for what it is. It's, it's open, bold-faced rebellion against God. It's evilness. It's wickedness. It's sinfulness. And how you thought about it and thought, man, how good and gracious and kind is God to give Jesus for my sin and forgive my sins and how overwhelmed you were by the grace and the love of Jesus and how much you, your, your faith was rejoicing in the cross and you were, your mindset was, I don't want these things anymore. I want Jesus. Give me Jesus, not these things anymore. Now let me ask, is your faith the same such that your view of your sin is the same today as it was then? Or has it changed? And if it's changed, why has it changed? It's still just as grievous, still just as evil, still, still just as wicked, and it still costs Jesus just as much. See, it's an ongoing faith that we must have, not that we are continually saved in, in the sense that we need to continually repent from our sins and believe for a conversion. No, if you are saved, you are saved. It's a, a completed transaction. However, that faith is ongoing. It persists. It endures. Because if it doesn't, verse 3, as I said, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Y'all, this is not a deficiency in God's part, the failure that they would enter his rest. His rest is there. He is resting. Why? Because he is done with his work. The failure is not on God's part, but on the part of the Israelites who did not press on and endure in his faith, in their faith. Look at verses four and five. For he is somewhere, the author knows where it is. He could quote it if he wanted to, but that's not his point right now. He says, he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, we need to talk a little bit about creation here because it's important for us. Because it builds into this argument. And we can't give ground here because if we give ground here, then we're giving ground on what the argument is being made here in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you will glance, if you've got the ability to do that, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the doctrine of creation. 
And back in our passage in chapter 4, he's talking about the doctrine of creation. He says, look, God created in six days and rested on the seventh. And the reason why this is important is because he's making a point that rest comes after work is accomplished. So we have a problem if we're going to say, well, God just simply set things in motion and then let natural course happen because he had nothing to rest from. But if we understand what Genesis 1 and 2 lay out for us, that he created, and he created the world in six days, and we can talk about it more offline later at another time, that these were six literal days, then it makes sense for the author to say after he finished his work, he rested. He's saying we have a work to finish too is what he's saying here. In our work, what is the work that we need to finish? We need to finish the work of faith, the work of believing and persisting in our faith. If we want to enter into that rest, God's rest, then what we need to do is make sure that we aren't jumping ship too early, that we're not aborting our faith before it's fully realized in the presence of the Lord. Now, let me encourage you. If you are in Christ, God is preserving your faith. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, we are being guarded by faith by God's power, that our faith is being preserved by God's power for our salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So if you are in Christ, I don't want you to worry that you're going to wake up tomorrow and then all of a sudden be like, well, I just don't believe in God anymore. If you do, well, that's evidence that you didn't have that faith to begin with. So if you are in Christ, this isn't about, oh man, am I just going to all of a sudden run into an argument that I can't solve and fall away? No, you're not going to. But part of our evidence that we are in Christ is that we are persisting in our faith, that our faith is continuing, that we're not falling by the wayside, that we're not chasing after the world, that we're not becoming overly discouraged by things and going, okay, well, fine, I, I just give up. I don't want it anymore. That we're making sure that we understand who it is and what it is that we believe in. Because that rest is still to come, and we need to finish the work that God has provided for us, which is to be faithful Christians, faithful to his calling, faithful to the life that we should be living in him. Sunday afternoons, I don't know what they look like for you, but they look a little different for me, especially now that my CBI class has started. So I'm teaching apologetics on Sunday mornings, which I love doing, and it's a great class, but man, it's, it's heavy, and it takes a lot out of me. And then, like this morning, I went to the 11 o'clock service after that and listened to a, an awesome sermon by, by Pastor Chris and then went home, and there's my kids, and I haven't seen them all day, so I'm playing with my kids and everything. And then I, I sat down on the couch to watch the, the end of the, the golf tournament that was going on, and it was restful, but yet, I, in the back of my mind, I knew I'm not done yet for the day because I knew that I was coming here, and I still needed to do this with you guys. And again, this is something that I love to do. And so I still needed to, to finish some of my notes and finish some of my, my progression in, in the presentation and everything else like that. So I rested for a little while, but it was a rest that I knew, okay, this isn't really the, the full rest, for instance, that I'll get tomorrow when it's my day off and I get to be just at home with my family and I don't have to, to, to be on a work mode or on, so to speak. It's a different kind of rest. Well, y'all, we need to have that mentality here with the world in which we live in too. We need to remember that, no, there's still work to be done. It's not about us kicking it into neutral and just coasting for the rest of our lives. We should expect this life, this Christian life that we live to be exhausting. I mean, I trust all of us want that Revelation 21 kind of rest, right? Where God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more death. Why? Because there's no more sin. I, I trust that we all want that. Well, if we want that right now, we need to make sure that we have anchored ourselves to the right object and content of our faith. And that's point number one tonight. Re-examine the object and content of your faith. Make sure the what and the who of your faith is right.
Because the frightening reality is what we find in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who finishes his work, the one who is faithful to the end, right? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Okay, so these are not the the atheists. These are not the suicide bombers. These are the the church leaders. These are the Awana leaders. These are the the narrow and true north leaders. Not all of them. I'm not indicting all of our leaders in the church. But I'm saying these are the people that thought that that they were in. They're doing some pretty amazing stuff. Hey, we, we prophesied in your name. We preached sermons for you. We cast out demons in your name. And we did many mighty works in your name, miracles for you, Lord. We did all of that. Let us into heaven. We're here. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to imagine finishing your life looking forward to what you expect to be eternal rest in the joys of being with Jesus. Only to find out and hear from him that you won't be entering that rest, but instead unending weariness, unending sorrow, unending pain, and unending torment. Y'all, that's what's on the line. It's a startling, it's a frightening thought to think that there are going to be some who die and stand before Jesus after they die, expecting him to welcome them into his rest, only to hear them banish them to hell. And the key there is the object and content of your faith. That's why he says, let us fear. Guys, this is a corporate responsibility that we have. We talked about this last week. We need to to be looking around to our left and our right, making sure that, hey, we we don't want anybody in that position. So we need to care enough about one another to make sure that we are encouraging each other and spurring one another on and making sure that, yeah, we aren't falling away, that we are going to endure, that we have been united by faith with those who believe, that we will enter the rest because the object and the content of our faith is what it should be. How do I know where I am? Let's talk about the object of your faith for a moment. Hopefully it's Jesus. He's the only one that can save you. His work is the only work that can save you. And it's finished and it's done. Lacks nothing that you need to add to it. That should be the object of your faith. Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected. What are you trusting in for salvation? Who are you trusting in for salvation? Jesus should be the answer. But there are other objects of our faith that we're tempted by. Number one would be ourselves. We're tempted to think that we can be good enough. I I, I don't really need Jesus because I'm a good person. I don't really need Jesus because I'm I'm a smart person. Jesus is a crutch for intellectually weak people. I don't need Jesus because I don't believe God is out there. I'm going to trust in myself. I'm going to put all of eternity in my lap and trust that I can handle it. That's the wrong object of our faith. Another one, though, is our our parents. 
you can trust in your parents, that they are Christians, so therefore you're good to go. They brought you up in the church, so therefore you're okay. You want to ride the, the coattails of your parents' faith into eternity. But I forget who often says it. I, I know I've heard Pastor Mike say it, but God has no spiritual grandchildren. Just because your parents are saved does not mean that you, therefore, are saved. How about your leaders? You can put your confidence in your leaders and in their wisdom and think because of their wisdom that that somehow is what you need to trust in for salvation. Well, guys, you have amazing leaders. You've heard me preach on that. But your leaders aren't Jesus. And you have to trust Jesus. He has to be the object of your faith. Comfort can be the object of our faith. I'm good with Christianity as long as it's comfortable for me. But if it starts getting uncomfortable for me to be a Christian, man, whew, I'm going to start jettisoning the things that the world doesn't like until I find that comfortable spot again and I can have just enough Jesus that I'm comfortable, but not too much that the world's going to hate me. And that can't be the object of your, your faith. Circumstances, similarly. Man, as long as life is going well, for me, I've got the job I want. I'm at the school I want. I've got the boyfriend or girlfriend that I want. I've got the grades I want. Okay, Jesus and I are good. But once it goes sideways, all bets are off. Experience. Trusting in an experience. We're going to talk about this just a little bit more as we, we talk about the content of your faith in just a minute. But if your confidence in eternity is in an experience and not a person, then you've got the wrong object of your faith. If it's in a profession, if it's an event, then you missed it. It has to be Jesus. Baptism is one of those experiences. But if you're saying, I'm saved because I was baptized, then the object of your faith is misplaced. These are all different objects of your faith. The object of your faith that you need is that first one on that list. It's Jesus. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, look, if I die, don't worry about it, Timothy. I'm good to go. You know why? Because I know I'm not ashamed because I know not what I've believed, but what? But whom I have believed. It's got to be Jesus. That's the object of your faith. I could add another one on here, guys. If it's doctrine, but that doctrine doesn't lead to devotion to Christ, then your doctrine is the wrong object of your faith. Let's talk about content, though. What about the content of your faith? What should the content of our faith be? Well, it should be repentance and faith. Repentance from your sins and faith in the object of your faith, who's Jesus. In his work for you, that should be the content. That you're trusting in his work, that you're trusting that he died for your sins so that you be, can be forgiven, rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him. That, that is, is the content. That is what saves you. No other message saves you other than that. But there are, like with the object of our faith, other contents of our faith that we like. Like this uneasy hope that we have that Christianity is the best option amongst many. Well, I, I'm, Christianity has been working out for me so far. It's, it seems to be okay for me. It's what I've always known. I'm not confident that it's the best. I I'm not going to tell anyone that they're wrong for believing something else, but for me right now, this is what I'm doing. That's not going to cut it. An uneasy hope that you're going to be good enough, right? When we are the object of our faith, right? It's this, this question mark, of, am I going to be good enough to get into heaven? 
I hope so. Well, how do I know? I, is it going to be like Islam teaches that there's this divine scale? And man, I just hope my good works outweigh my bad works. Otherwise, I'm, I'm in a whole heap of trouble. Is it going to be like Mormonism teaches that it's salvation by grace after everything that I have done? Well, have I done enough? You've got this uncertain feeling about whether or not you are actually right with God. That can't be the content of your faith. Third, a blind trust in what your parents taught you. Yeah, maybe your parents taught you the gospel, but guys, you guys need to know why you believe what you believe. And if you don't, the first time somebody challenges it, why do you believe that? Why do you believe the Bible at all? Why do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Don't you know Christianity is one of the most intolerant religions out there? Why do you believe? Don't you know that Jesus was a figment of, of somebody's imagination that they just made up? Didn't you know the, about the Gnostic Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas and everything and about how Jesus was this punk kid who killed somebody because he bumped into him? Don't, don't you know about all this? Oh, you foolish child. What, what are you thinking? See, your, your confidence, the content of your faith has to be yours and not your parents. It has to be anchored to the content of what Jesus has done for you. Next, peace as long as circumstances are favorable. Again, we talked about that earlier. But the content of your faith, you're willing to sit here and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Yes, I believe all that. But if, man, if the heat gets turned up, nah, yeah, I don't. I don't really believe all that. Oh, oh, you're, you're a Muslim? Oh, okay, I'm, I'm good with that too. Oh, you're a Mormon? Oh, I'm good with that too. You're a Hindu? We're, hey, look, we're all just going the same direction. I just chose Christianity to get there. That can't be the content of your faith. That also won't cut it. And then a past experience. Past experience. Maybe it's a meeting that you had with a pastor. A retreat where you profess faith. A testimony that you gave from the baptism tank. And your confidence, the content of your faith is that event, not Jesus. Guys, there's a lot of empty professions. There's a lot of people I've met with throughout my life that I'm sure convinced me that they are Christians in my office who went out and denied Christ with the rest of their lives. You can fool me all day long and get me to say, man, that's awesome. You seem to be doing so well with your walk. And if your faith is in my seal of approval, it's empty. Your faith has to be in Jesus in Jesus. So let me ask you tonight, what is keeping you back from that full-blown faith in the right object, in the right content of that faith? If you want that rest and you would say, I'm not in the rest and I get that, I'm on the outside looking in, I want to ask you what's keeping you. And here's a few things that I was just thinking about as I was prepping. How about maybe I'm a compass kid. I can't, I can't get saved in college. I've been brought up in compass. I was a revival salvation. I can't get saved. I profess Jesus, I got baptized. Well, look, if you aren't saved and you were trusting in the wrong object and the wrong content, let me plead with you. You have to get over that. Because nobody cares that you were a compass kid. 
Jesus doesn't care that you were compass kid. I don't care that you were compass kid. God doesn't care that you were compass kid. If you're not in Christ, that means nothing. And I'm saying that as somebody who's raising compass kids right now. And I'm pleading and praying to the Lord that they don't put their confidence in the fact that they were raised in this church. But that they place it in Jesus. Second, maybe you're thinking it's going to cost me too much to really truly commit. Guys, let me beg with you, if that's you, read Revelation 21 again. (laughs) Read about what's coming and the offer of this eternal existence, this unending existence where there's no more pain, there's no more crying, okay? Just that alone. And that's not all. There's so much more that it's talked about in there. Read that and then ask yourself, is it really too much to trade what the world wants from me now for what God will offer me then? Maybe you think, well, I already prayed the prayer, so I'm good to go. I I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand when they told me to bow my head and every eye closed and every head bowed and, and just raise your hand and nobody will peek when everybody's really peeking, right? I did that. I'm good. What Get off me. But then the rest of your life doesn't match up with your profession of faith. Let me just ask you a simple question. What kind of tree produces no fruit? A dead tree. Don't let that stop you from saying, okay, I, I really need to get right with the Lord. This isn't, I'm not making this about age, okay? Please hear me say that. I'm not making this about age. I'm making this about whether or not you were genuinely saved or if you're trusting in an experience. Fourth, what are my friends and family going to think? I, I don't know what they're going to think, but I can tell you in this room, we will celebrate and go off with you about it, right? And more importantly, what God is going to think is he's going to say, man, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a hundred that don't need it. Don't be that hundred. Be the one sinner that comes back repenting that's going to cause God to to throw a, a, a party in heaven over you. Maybe you think, well, I'll just do it later. Let me ask you to think about tonight, how much time are you guaranteed right now where you sit? in your power, in your control, how much can you guarantee yourself tonight when eternity is at stake? Again, let me encourage you to re-examine the object and content of your faith. If the object of your faith isn't Jesus, if the content of your faith isn't an enduring trust that he died for your sins and that death was fully sufficient. He rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him. If that is not the object and content of your faith, then your faith is not going to gain you the rest that he's offering. The Israelites had failed to enter because of unbelief, but then there was that group that was after them that was led by then Joshua, and they went into the promise of to the, to the promised land. You remember Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and he marched around and the walls came tumbling down, 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 down. They blew the trumpets, the walls crashed, right? And Israel entered in, they actually took possession of the land. But notice what he says 
continuing on, he says in verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter the rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, saying, Today, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and so the writer's saying, Well, they, they entered into the rest, but then he reissues the promise to David. Well, but wait a minute, they had already entered into the promised land. They had already gotten the rest. In fact, under David, things were going pretty well. They were dominating on the, the world power spectrum. And then it was only going to get better under Solomon. And yet, again, God through David promises, hey, look, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness, and then you'll be able to enter into the rest. And so we got to be asking ourselves, well, what rest is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the promised land. He's talking about the promised land. What? He's talking about the spiritual, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the rest that's yet future. The disobedience of the few didn't negate the opportunity for us still today, but yet it's still faith that is required. And again, if you're going, why is he camping out so much in the Old Testament? Well, it's because of who he was writing to. He's writing to this Jewish group of, of Christians that were Jews formerly that are wrestling with all this stuff. Going, how should we think about Moses? How should we think about the promises to Israel? Are we dispensationalists? Are we not? They weren't thinking about that. But they were trying to struggle with, what should we do with all this stuff? Do we leave? Do we go back? Do we keep the law? How should we think about the, the promise of land and inheritance? Man, that was massive in our history for, you know, two, 2,500 years or so or, or more. What should we do with all this? And so the writer's writing to them saying, hey, look, let's think about this. But you and I can still learn a lot from this. Look at verse 8. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That is through David. And so this is more than just entering the promised land. So then there remains still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Y'all, entering the promised land was a big deal for Israel. It was a big deal. I don't know if you remember reading in Joshua, Joshua chapter three and chapter four, at the end of chapter three into the beginning of chapter four, God talks about how they're gonna enter the promised land. And he talks about stepping into the, the Jordan River. Y'all remember that story? How the, the priests carrying the ark of God stepped into the waters and what happened to the waters? Boom, they were stacked up miles away, and it was dry there. And all of God's people there crossed over that, the, the dry riverbed of the Jordan River. In its flood stages, they cross over into the promised land. It's a miraculous event that happens. God is parting the, the Jordan River saying, here's the rest, here's the promised land, here's what I was telling you, here's the milk and honey. Enter in, take possession of what I promised you and find rest. And it was so significant that God even told Joshua, hey, have a representative from each of the 12 tribes on their way through the river, pick up a rock out of the river. And then on the other side, I want you to build a monument so that every time you walk by and see this monument, you're gonna remember what happened when you entered into the promised land here. It was a massive thing. It was not some small, okay, yeah, there's the promised land, but there's a better rest coming. No, this was a monumental day in the history of Israel. Literally, I mean, they set up a monument. This was massively significant and important. And it's still a massive issue today. So much of the conflict going on right now in Israel is centered on this idea of the promised land. That's the con conflict between the Arabs, the Palestinians, and the Israelites. 
is about what territory belongs to who. And at the end of the day, the promised land belongs to Israel. It is their land, but that's what's leading to all that conflict. But our author says this expectation of that land and that rest, that's not what he's talking about here. For if Joshua had given them rest, well, he did. He led them into the promised land. That land that Moses was talking about, that we talked about back in Deuteronomy in the opening of the message, he realized it. There it is. And they started defeating their enemies. But yet that's not the rest. Because as verse 8 goes on, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The day that he promised through David. The day that is a rest that he's going to talk about in Hebrews eleven sixteen, Where it says, but as it is, they desire a better country. Better than what? Better than the one that the, the Old Testament Israelites took over. Better than the promised land. They desire a better one. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 9, so then, back in our text, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The word Sabbath there is, it's not the concept of a day. It's actually a verbal noun. It's a participle. There's a Sabbathing for the people of God still. And it's hearkening back to God resting after his creative activity. Saying, look, that rest still exists for the people of God. And look, it, it really, this rest that we're talking about now doesn't have anything to do with Israel. It doesn't have anything to do with this triangular section of land out by the Mediterranean. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the promise of God of a future rest that will never, ever end. He's saying that's the rest that still exists. But that rest comes by finishing our work. The author's biggest argument in this section, in this passage that we're in, is basically don't fail to complete the course and forfeit your entrance into God's rest. Don't fail to finish, to endure in your faith, to persevere in your faith. This is a common thing in Scripture, a common theme throughout the New Testament. James talks about trials producing endurance. Peter calls us to endure. First John, we're called to endure. Hebrews 4, 11, let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter which rest? That rest. And that rest, y'all, is not a rest that you're going to find here. It's a rest that's still future. That's why we've got to keep pressing on. Point number two tonight is this. By the way, there's only two points tonight. If you're wondering how long is this going to go, there's only two points. Remember that rest isn't here and now. Remember that rest isn't here and now. Is it wrong to take a vacation? No. Vacations are good. Is it wrong to take a nap? No. Naps are a gift of the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm saying, look, the ultimate rest that you should have your hope in is not going to be found here. And so when it's difficult to be a Christian and when it's exhausting to fight sin, can I ask you, what did you expect? It's not going to get easier. You don't reach a stage of spiritual maturity where you're like, oh man, this Christianity thing, this is easy. What's next? No, it's hard. It's hard and we have to finish. Even though it's done, the work is done for us. Look, y'all, we still need to finish the race. We need to endure. I mentioned earlier, I was watching this golf tournament this afternoon and this guy, Patrick Cantlay, ended up winning it. And it came down to the 18th hole and it was a, a close, it was a close round. And on the 18th hole, John Rahm hit a, hit a ball over the green and had a, a chip back at it for an eagle. And if he had made that and then 
if Cantlay had made his, it was shot for shot until Rom finally missed that chip in for Eagle. And once he missed the chip in for Eagle, it was done. Cantlay had two putts within seven feet. He had two putts to make up seven feet to win the tournament. By the way, if you don't know anything about golf, you're like, I don't know, is that hard? No, it's not. I could make a putt within two. Well, I, I would imagine so. But for $15 million, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't. But he had two putts. In the first putt, he, he hit, the, the ball was six inches from the cup. Nobody misses a six-inch putt. It's done. It's over. In fact, the graphic came up on the screen. Your 2021 FedEx Cup champion, Patrick Cantlay. Sure enough, he walked in and he tapped it in. But here's the deal, y'all. If he had never walked up and tapped that in and simply walked off the course, he's not the FedEx Cup champion. He had to finish. If you guys watched the Alabama football game yesterday, it was over once the ball was kicked off. Supposed to be this big matchup between Alabama and Miami, and it wasn't even close. But y'all, here's the thing. If Alabama had walked off the field in the third quarter and never finished, even though they were blowing out the opponent, guess what Alabama gets on the record? An L, because they didn't finish. Because we have to finish. We have to strive, as the author says here. It's a word that means to be diligent and to be zealous about it. We need to strive to enter. We need to be diligent and faithful to enter the rest, to make sure that we are finishing that we are staying faithful, that we are adhering to the gospel, believing the gospel, believing the truth that Jesus is enough, that Jesus died for me, that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the one that I need to, to devote my entire life to, that Jesus is the one that I need to glorify with my entire life, right? That is the, the, the aim and existence of our lives. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, I make it, my, whether I'm at home or away, I make it my aim to please Christ, right? That's what it looks like. That's our goal. That's what we need to be striving after for the rest of our lives, to make it our aim to please Jesus. But this concept of striving is found in, in other passages. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best is the word that's, that's translated in our passage, strive. Strive to present yourself to God as one approved. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, right? There's Owana right there. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Second Peter 1.10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. It's the word for strive there. Therefore, brothers, strive to confirm your calling and election. Be diligent after this. Don't kick it in neutral and expect that your relationship with the Lord is just gonna take off naturally. Don't come meet with me and be like, I don't know why I feel so distant from the Lord and have me go, well, how's your time in the word? And you're going, well, I'm just not, I'm not in the word. How's your prayer life? I'm, I'm not praying. Oh, well, well, what's your relationship with your girlfriend like? Oh, well, we've been doing things we shouldn't do. You're not striving. You're not being diligent. So no wonder your relationship with the Lord is a garbage can. 2 Peter 3, 14. Again, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, the, the end times when the Lord comes back, be diligent, strive. Make an effort to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Do you notice the, the emphasis on our godliness and our holiness there? That we need to be diligent. We need to strive after godliness and holiness. That we do indeed have a part to play in that. So let me ask you some questions tonight. Are you actively pursuing obedience to the Lord? Are you striving to be obedient to the Lord? Are you being diligent? Are you zealous about obeying the Lord? Are you striving daily after godliness? 
Let me ask you this. Are you planning to grow in holiness? Or do you go to bed thinking about the next time that you're going to get to sin? In Proverbs, Solomon writes this, let your eyes look directly in front of you, directly forward, and let your gaze be right before you. Ponder, consider the path of your feet. Watch your feet, how you're walking. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or, or to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Y'all, are you, are you actively turning your feet away from evil? Are you being zealous for that? Are you striving for that in your life? Or how about Proverbs 5 and 6, which we just read recently in our DBR? This is a good time for this message because we are smack dab in the middle of Proverbs in our DBR. And Proverbs is all about how we can put this into practice, how we can be striving, how we can be following the Lord actively, living these things out. Wisdom in action is the book of Proverbs. But in Proverbs 5 through 6, after talking about the adulterous woman, the forbidden woman, sexual immorality, he says, beginning in verse 7, Now, sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Y'all, if you're struggling out there with pornography, on whatever side of the gender spectrum you are on, are you keeping your way far from her? Are you abstaining? Are you not going near, as he continues on in verse 8? Do not go near the door of her house unless you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own will. He goes on again practically in verse 6. Where am I at? 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 He goes on, he says this about the forbidden woman. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Where are your desires? Man, if you didn't listen to, to Pastor Chris's message this morning, go back and listen to it. He talks a lot about this concept of our desires and worldliness, right? What are you entertaining in your mind? What are you giving your thoughts to? Do not desire her, he says. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and on his clothes and not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his grace will not, disgrace rather, will not be wiped away. Y'all, are you striving to obey God's word? Are you taking the counsel of God's word and putting it into action is what we're talking about here. Colossians 3, put off and put on. Are you doing that? Galatians 5, here's the works of the flesh. Here's the works of the spirit. Where are you at? What are you cultivating in your life? Y'all, is this hard? Let me ask you that question. I want you to answer me. Is it hard to do this? Yes. Yes. Let me make that abundantly clear. I in no way want to comfort you to say it's going to get easier. It won't. I don't want to, to, to fleece you. I don't want anybody to go away and say, well, Pastor PJ told me this whole Christianity thing was easy. I don't think anybody's ever accused me of that ever. But I just want to make sure, right? It's not easy. It's hard. Why? Because you don't belong here. Because your rest is not meant to be found here. 
And if you're at rest here, then you're at rest behind enemy lines, at least God's enemies. Maybe they're not your enemies. Peter says we're strangers and aliens in this world. It's not supposed to be easy here. I get that it's hard, and that's why it's so important to remember that final point that we had from last week. It's not this week's final point. It's last week's, but it's that help each other stay the course. I guess it could be this week's too. Go ahead, sure, write it down, point number three. Help each other, because we need it. It's just as true this week as it was last week. Yeah, it's hard, and you guys need to be there for each other. Don't write down those verses. They don't match up. But you guys need each other in this to remind you, hey, look, rest is not meant to be found here. Yeah, I know it's hard, but keep pressing on. There's a rest that's coming. Keep striving. Hey, let me walk with you. Let me encourage you. Hey, put your arm around me. Let me carry you when you're struggling so that you'll carry me when I'm struggling. Let's go. Let's do this together. Let's run after Jesus. That doesn't mean we're going to sit down on the sideline and talk about all the obstacles that we all share in common in our lives and just go, hey, well, we should all form a, a, an accountability group about our, our same obstacles that we all have and just have obstacles together. No. Go, move, press on, strive, make progress. Nobody who's striving stands still. It's impossible. There should be growth here in our lives as believers. Again, go back and listen to Pastor Chris's message this morning. Guys, here's the thing. Some of y'all keep coming to me or keep coming to your leaders looking for the magic formula for you to feel good about your relationship with Jesus, for you to feel confident about your relationship with Jesus. You come and you want us to give you a different book to read. I talked about this a little bit last week, but it's just, it's, it's weighing on me. You want us to recommend a, a different book to read, or you want to meet with your leader and just be able to walk away and go, oh man, that was such a good talk. I feel so much better about my relationship with Jesus now. I'm good for at least another couple weeks. Or you want to just meet and you want to cry about your sins so that you can get a good cry out about it. And then you, you're like, okay, that was cathartic. I, I feel like I'm good. Now I can go move past this burden that I feel. Or you, you say, well, I just want to go through partners. Let me just go through partners. And once I go through par partners, then I'll be good. By the way, that's another object of our faith that we can put our faith in rather than in Jesus. Well, let me just try that accountability app again. And if I try the accountability app again and, and everything else, then, 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 uh, then I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. Give me, give me some more advice. Give me some more counsel. Tell me what I need to do. Or some of you, just when you hear that somebody else is struggling with the same sin, you feel like, okay, whew, then, well, if that person's struggling with that sin and I think they're a Christian, then I, I'm, I must be good too. Look, y'all, some of those things are good. Nothing wrong with Christian living books. Well, some of them. There's nothing wrong with partners. Partners is a great program. You should do it. There's nothing wrong with using accountability software. Be all those things divorced from a love for Jesus are powerless to do anything for you. And they won't lead you to the rest that you're looking for. This morning, Pastor Chris was talking about, well, I want a job, I want to get married, I want a Tesla, whatever he was talking about, right? He mentioned Tesla a few times, which I know people in our church who drive Teslas, I'm like, oh man, they're squirming right now. <laughs> but he was going through all this stuff, right? And then he said this, are those things wrong? And he said, yes, 
And I think everybody who was typing it looked up like, what? What did he just say? And then he said this. He said, every desire has to involve a desire for Christ. That's what, what I'm talking about here. Your desire to grow, your desire to strive, your desire to excel has to be about Jesus, not about anything else. If it's about anything else, then you've short-circuited what God's doing and you will fail to enter that rest. It has to be Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd keep us from falling, keep us from fading, keep us from drifting. Keep us anchored to Christ, our focus on Christ, our love on Christ. God, I pray that we would be a group that is striving and striving together. As the author will say later on in the book, running the race. God, I pray that we would run the race. And even there, as he says that, he says, what do we need to be doing as we are running the race? As we're looking to strive so that none of us will fall, what do we need to do? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. We need to keep our eyes on the one that already has run the race and run it perfectly for us. And we need to anchor our minds and our thoughts and our eyes there and not get distracted by the things of this world. And so God, enable us to do that. Give us the grace to be able to do this. That's, that's what we need. We can't manufacture any of this by our own willpower but we need your work in and through us, God. We need you to use your spirit dwelling within us as believers to ignite a, a passion and desire for Christ. But, well, that begins by us resolving to say, hey, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow morning. I'm gonna open up the Bible and read it, even if I may not feel like it right then. I'm gonna pray even if it's five words because I don't feel like I know what to say. I'm gonna stop watching that show even though I want to finish it out and all my friends watch it and we talk about it, but I'm gonna stop watching it because it's a decision that I can make that's gonna honor the Lord because what that show stands for doesn't honor the Lord. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna tell my neighbor, my coworker, my, my family member about Jesus because they need to hear about Jesus. Lord, whatever that step that we need to do, that we need to take to be striving, I pray that we would. I pray that we would love one another in this room enough to make sure that none of us fall along the way before we enter that rest, that rest that the offer of it, it still exists because that rest has not yet been realized anywhere but will be realized when we are with you forever and ever and ever. And we look forward to that day. We thank you for the reality of that day, the certainty of that day because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.